Welcome to Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. Militiamen occupied towns and villages across East Timor today, and police evacuated dozens of U.N. staff workers from one of the many areas that were under siege by the marauding gangs. A new wave of violence also swept across parts of Dili, where votes are being counted in Monday's historic referendum on East Timor's future. Smoke poured from some shacks that had been set on fire near the U.N. compound in Dili's Bakora district. The U.N. mission said it was defenseless in the face of the deteriorating security situation and the inability of Indonesian defense forces to restore law and order. We'll have a report from Dili in just a little while. A delegation of U.S. congressional staffers shook hands with emaciated Iraqi children during a tour of Basra, Iraq's second largest city, as the delegates wrapped up their tour of the nation's battered south. The congressional group on a week-long humanitarian fact-finding mission arrived in Iraq on Saturday despite fierce opposition from the U.S. State Department, which claimed the trip would be used for propaganda by Iraqi President Saddam Hussein. The group first toured Baghdad, the capital, and then were taken by authorities on a trip of Iraq south. In the southern port city of Basra, where 1.5 million people live, Iraqi doctors told the staffers that every two in 10 children born in southern Iraq suffer from some deformity. A Texas congressman and some rice farmers are asking for the easing of some trade sanctions against Cuba. They're visiting the nation in search of new markets. They're asking the U.S. lift restrictions on food and medicine sales to Cuba. Congressmember Nick Lamson is one of a series of lawmakers making visits to Cuba, underscoring the growing support for new ways to help hard-hit American farmers. Lamson says trade sanctions hurt American farmers as well as the Cuban people. More positive signs from the Mideast. Egypt's official Middle East news agency quotes Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat as saying an agreement has been concluded with the Israelis on all points. Earlier, a senior Israeli official said the Israelis and Palestinians had resolved their differences over the release of Palestinian prisoners. That had been a key sticking point recently in talks aimed at reviving the long-stalled Wai River peace agreement. An official says the Palestinians ended up accepting an Israeli offer to release 350 Palestinians held for anti-Israeli activities. The star witness in the slaying of a West African immigrant may not be called to testify when the death penalty trial begins for the white supremacists charged in the killing. This news from Denver. Nathan Thill, 21, is accused of murdering Umar Dia because he was black and of paralyzing Jeannie Van Velkenberg, who tried to come to Dia's aid in a late-night attack in a downtown Denver bus stop. Ms. Van Velkenberg's testimony helped convict Thill's companion, Jeremiah Barnum, but Barnum was later granted a new trial because a judge ruled Van Velkenberg's emotional behavior, which included screaming, crying, and belching, jeopardized Barnum's right to a fair trial. A native of Senegal, the slightly statured Dia was a hotel bellhop, sending his earnings home to support his family and fellow villagers. Both Phil and Barnum, who worked at a service station, allegedly had ties to the skinhead movement. This news from Pine Ridge, South Dakota. It's been nearly three months since two Sioux men were found slain in a culvert near the Nebraska line, and many Indians doubt authorities even care whether they solve the crime. 
In fact, some Indian activists say the apparent standstill in the investigation only confirms their suspicion that white Nebraska lawmen helped kill Wilson Black Elk Jr. and Ronald Hardhart or helped cover up the crime to make it seem as if Indians were responsible. The deaths have led to a violent protest and heightened long-standing tensions between whites and the Oglala Sioux from the poor and desolate Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. And finally, from the Amazon to the Atlantic in the mountains of Rio de Janeiro and the Pantano wetlands, Brazil is burning. Months of little or no rain have left most of the country tinder dry, and fires often deliberately set are raging out of control in forests and national parks across Latin America's largest country. Satellite images identified more than 31,000 fires in 15 states last month, according to Brazil's Environmental Protection Agency. But because the satellites from the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric administration can't see through clouds or thick smoke. The total almost surely was higher, and September looks even worse. You are listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman here, joined with my co-host Juan Gonzalez. Welcome, Juan. Good day, Amy, and to all of our listeners on this, uh, the beginning of the last weekend of summer. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening, and along with millions of other Americans, are going to be getting this ready this weekend for school uh, next week and getting their kids prepared. And, of course, along with that will come all the ongoing battles in public education around things like charter schools and vouchers and new standards and what it all means. Is it really dismantling of the public education system or is it uh, just a quest for better quality in our schools? In fact, in Detroit right now, there is a major teacher strike that has, though, the support of the whole community, despite obviously the inconvenience of that. Uh, teachers uh, striking, among other issues, for smaller class size. Yes, which is the single the most important reform that would raise the level of education everywhere. Well, uh, we're going to turn right now to uh, an issue that uh, has been long simmering, and uh, new information has come out on it in the last few days. U.S. Marshals this week seized tape evidence from the FBI showing that its agents got permission to use flammable tear gas canisters during the 1993 assault on the Branch Davidian compound near Waco, Texas. The marshals were sent to FBI offices by Attorney General Janet Reno, who is angry that the agency held hold on to the tapes for four days without turning over the evidence. The discovery of the audio tape is a second time in recent days the FBI has disclosed evidence of the use of the flammable military tear gas rounds after six years of adamantly denying 
that the devices had been used. Justice Department officials described Attorney General Janet Reno as furious with the discovery of the tape, which includes the voice of an FBI field commander authorizing his agents to fire pyrotechnic tear gas canisters into a concrete bunker at the compound. The commander, Richard Rogers, later sat behind then-FBI Director William Sessions when he testified before Congress and denied the use of such munitions. Several hours after the munitions were fired, a fire at the compound killed 80 members of the group, including its leader, David Koresh. The Justice Department and the FBI continued to maintain that Koresh and his followers started the fire. Well, controversy over Waco, one of the murkiest incidents in recent American history, was reignited last week when the Dallas Morning News uncovered evidence from a Texas lawsuit that FBI agents had used the incendiary canisters and quoted a former senior FBI official who confirmed the story. Uh, the paper also quoted a former CIA officer as saying that three or four commandos of the Delta Force, a secret army unit, had played an active role in helping the FBI in the final assault of the compound. The Pentagon has said that members of the unit were there only as observers. Lee, Hancock, Lee Hancock is with us now. Uh, she is the daily, the Dallas Morning News reporter who broke the story. Welcome to Democracy Now, Lee. Thanks for having me. Well, can you tell us exactly uh, what you found out? Well, several things. One, there was a photograph taken at the uh, crime scene that uh, depicted one of these devices. It's called an M651 uh, CS tear gas grenade. Uh, there was also a shell casing that was recovered. Now, what's interesting is the uh, uh, the projectile itself that was photographed has disappeared from the evidence lockers, which are in the custody of the Texas Rangers. This is an arm of the Texas Department of Public Safety. They were brought in to help investigate. Um, and we discovered that the FBI had acknowledged um, years ago, um, back in 1993, when the uh, shell casing was found, they acknowledged to the Texas Rangers that, yes, that this was theirs and they had had permission to fire it. Additionally, after the um, fire itself, there are documents in the Justice Department that have surfaced that uh, indicate that uh, hostage rescue team members had acknowledged firing military rounds. Um, these... Uh, records surfaced from civil attorneys uh, in the Justice Department who were defending a wrongful death suit that's been filed by the Davidians. They became curious enough, apparently, about or, or concerned enough about allegations being raised by plaintiff's lawyers in that case that in 1996 they went to the FBI and said, we would like for clarification from you on you know, what, uh, you know, what might be going on here. They brought, and among other things, my understanding is this photograph of this device, the hostage rescue team was questioned, and there is a memo in the file of the FBI general counsel's office in which uh, it's written that these uh, hostage rescue team members absolutely acknowledged that they had fired two of these devices. Now, the, the key issue is did people understand that these military devices, military gas rounds, were in fact pyrotechnic? There's a great insistence that no uh, no one understood that that military gas rounds meant that some, this was something capable of starting a fire. But uh, United States military uh, CS tear gas rounds are universally pyrotechnic in nature. 
Now, in terms of uh, how significant this is, because the allegations are that that the uh, that the, the canisters were used against a concrete bunker, not against the actual uh, dwelling in which the Branch Davidians were in. Uh, how significant is this? Well, the FBI has argued that this thing, these things were used at about 7.42, 7.43 in the morning. Uh, the fire itself did not break out until noon. Uh, so there's several issues. One, uh, you have people, um, you know, in all walks, you know, looking at this, not just folks who have been uh, talked about as militia or right-wing or, you know, uh, you know, anti-government folks, but even people like, there's a gentleman, Henry Roos, he's a former Watergate prosecutor. He helped head the United States Treasury uh, review of uh, the actions of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms in Waco. They are the agency that started the siege with a, a raid on February 28th. Uh, Mr. Roos also headed an independent investigation into the, the MOVE tragedy where the, the row houses in Philadelphia were set afire. And Mr. Ruth yesterday told me that if there are two, you have to wonder whether or f whether there are four or more. He noted that by 11 o'clock, the FBI was extraordinarily frustrated. These people were not coming out. And he said that, you know, there, there, there has to be a hard look at what else might have been used. Others uh, that are looking at this, people within Congress, uh, even uh, people who have been traditionally supporters of the FBI and its actions in Waco have said this just simply makes people question everything the FBI says. It, it makes people question what else might be out there that hasn't been recovered yet. Lee Hancock of the Dayless Morning News. We're also joined by David Hardy, an attorney in Arizona who for the past three years has been battling government agencies through the courts to gain access to records on the standoff. He's filed eight Freedom of Information Act requests with the Justice Department and the FBI and recently won $32,000 in attorney's fees after a judge ruled that the FBI and the Agency for Tobacco and Firearms had stonewalled his requests. David Hardy, how significant do you think uh, this latest information, this actual audio tape of, uh, of the FBI field commander uh, telling the other FBI agents to use the incendiary devices is? It can be quite important. Uh, I would agree with uh, Mr. Ruth that the two objects that were found are not themselves, you know, that important. They, they were fired hours before the fire and at some distance. But the thing is, we have had a, um, the government position has been throughout that it never used any of them. Uh, that's what it told the Attorney General. That's what it told everyone else. And now suddenly we discovered that, well, uh, okay, we did use a few of them. And uh, it starts. you've got to start asking the question, did you use any later in the day? Did you use any against the building itself? I, I think they did. Some of the surviving Davidians uh, have testified that um, they, their phrase was something effective. They could hear the tear gas rounds hissing under the furniture, and they were too hot to pick up and throw out. That is a description of a pyrotechnic round, not the non-pyrotechnic ferrets that the FBI claimed it was using. Now, a pyrotechnic round burns a gunpowder mixture, uh, expels the tear gas as part of its smoke. It also expels fire, and it takes about 30 seconds to um, shoot off its load. So for 30 seconds, it's hissing, and they're specifically designed to get too hot to pick up to prevent you from 
picking them up and throwing them out during this time. That suggests to me that these rounds were fired into the building itself, uh, which can have a link to the fire. Well, Lee Hancock, in terms of the credibility of the FBI, a, a couple of years ago we had the enormous scandal over the FBI laboratory and uh, Frederick Whitehurst, the whistleblower who, who went through so much uh, persecution uh, uh, within the FBI, and now we have the situation of the Attorney General actually ordering U.S. Marshals to seize records, and the New York Times today is reporting a, a, uh, a growing rift between uh, FBI Director Free and Janet Reno. Uh, what is this doing to the rep reputation and the credibility of the FBI across the country? I think it has damaged it. I think that uh, people within the Bureau uh, acknowledge that they, they have had a very embarrassing couple of weeks. And line agents, guys in the field, uh, feel like there is some concern that they will be affected by this. I talked to the United States Attorney in San Antonio, and he oversees the Waco uh, Federal Prosecutor's Office, and he said that he's concerned that it's not just the FBI agents, but all federal agents are going to feel some impact. He said that he, they, they have cases in trial. They have juries that are being selected. They have people who are private citizens who are being asked to pass on the, the honesty uh, and, and the evidence of the federal government, not just brought by the FBI. And he said that they're going to have great problems with that for some time. They, they say that it's a blow not just for the FBI, but for all of federal law enforcement. But certainly I think the FBI is going to be deeply affected for some time. David Hardy, what does this mean uh, for uh, the movement and the militia movement in this country um, that have certainly been saying that federal agents were responsible for the deaths of uh, the Branch Davidians uh, who died in the Waco Inferno? Uh, how does this fuel that movement? Well, in the short term, it would probably help it uh, because, you know, there would be some people who have been concerned over this who would now feel vindicated, that their fears have been vindicated. In the long run, if they do the right thing and have an impartial outside uh, assessment of the evidence that, in fact, gets to the bottom of things, it might, in the long run, undercut a, a sort of militia movement simply because those type of movements thrive on the idea that there is no alternative, <clears throat> to, to use the 60s jargon, there is no alternative within the system. And if you can demonstrate that the system works, there tends to be less of a need for that sort of thing. So uh, short-term, uh, beneficial to that sort of movement, long-term, maybe not, if, if they handle it correctly. Well, I want to thank you very much for being with us. And again, the latest news we have uh, that Attorney General Janet Reno has narrowed down uh, the list of candidates uh, for an independent uh, investigator, an independent counsel prosecutor in this case, investigating the FBI. Our guests have been David Hardy, attorney in Arizona, who for years has been battling government agencies to get information on what happened at Waco, and Lee Hancock, who has broken this story. She's from the Dallas Morning News.
You are listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! When we come back, we head to Dili, East Timor, uh, to find out about the mounting violence there. Uh, in just hours, the U.N. is expected to uh, announce the results of the historic referendum in East Timor that took place on Monday. We'll also speak with Noam Chomsky about why Americans should care about what's happening in East Timor. You're listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! We'll be back in a minute. You are listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman here with Juan Gonzalez as we turn now to East Timor, bracing for more violence today from militias armed and backed by Indonesia. With an announcement due tomorrow of the result of this past Monday's referendum on independence, the result is expected to show overwhelming support uh, for self-determination for the people of East Timor for independence in the island. The militias have effectively taken control of a number of areas in East Timor, the towns of Maliana in western East Timor and Lakisa, uh, where a terrible massacre took place in April, uh, participating in that militias as well as Indonesian military. Also, Ermera, which is just a few miles south of the capital, Dili where they're operating with impunity. The U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights, Mary Robinson, is expressing concern over the violence perpetrated by the death squads, squads which have so far killed scores of civilians. Robinson's talking about a substantial U.N. peacekeeping force may be needed to protect, quote, the fundamental human rights of a terrorized population. Before we turn to Noam Chomsky about why Americans should care, uh, just before the show, I reached Dili East Timor, journalist Alan Nairn, to talk about the situation in Dili. Well, I think it's normal. I think it's normal for Timor uh, for you know, most of the years of the occupation. Um, in a sense, I think the international coverage I've seen is um, in a way exaggerated. Uh, in another way, not. I think it's exaggerated in the sense that it's not as if what's happening now uh, is unusual for Timor. This is what the Timorese uh, have been living with since 1975. Today was actually the first day uh, that I got the feeling that the terror 
in this case in Dili, had returned to uh, the levels that existed, say, prior to the Dili massacre. The actual death toll around Dili um, has been higher than, than that time. But um, the feeling of all pervasive danger of, uh, you know, death possibly being around every corner, um, that really wasn't there until today. But today, talking, uh, and that was always there, you know, in 1990, 91. But today, you know, you just, every uh, Timorese you heard about was fleeing their home, uh, running up to the hills, because the militias, um, the army-backed militias, uh, just in Dili have been sacking and burning homes uh, in the Bakora neighborhood, in the Comoro uh, neighborhood. Uh, they've reportedly burned uh, 200 houses, at least, in uh, Maliana. Uh, the death toll of Timorese worker, UN workers killed is now acknowledged to be four and uh, six are missing. Um, in the past two days, there have been telephone threats to the UN uh, civil police that the militias might raid uh, the Dili Museum where the referendum votes are being counted and uh, burn uh, the ballots. Uh, many Timorese tonight are sheltering in uh, the homes of uh, uh, friends. Um, it is a frightening situation for the uh, Timorese, but in a way it's not an exception. I mean, this is what it's like in an occupied uh, country where they've killed a third of the population. Uh, I only wish uh, all these international reporters who are now getting all excited and who are now, uh, you know, chartering planes to get the hell out of Dili, uh, I wish they'd been here in 75 and uh, 85 and 1991. If half of these reporters had been there at the Dili massacre, uh, you know, with their cameras running and immediate uh, coverage, this nightmare could have ended uh, a long time ago way it's kind of welcome to reality for uh, all these reporters and international observers. This is the reality that Timorese have been living with uh, people in a number of countries, a number of uh, you know, U.S.-backed uh, uh, military terror countries have been living in these kind of conditions. And, uh, you know, that's what's happening in, uh, in Dili today. I think if, as many people are saying today, it really does happen uh, that all these U.N. people back from the field to Dili, um, many of the um, uh, civilian non-governmental organization monitors uh, pull back from the field to Dili and, in fact, leave Timor because many have to get back to school or to work in America and Europe and elsewhere. Uh, if many of the journalists who are now in the Hotel Turismo and in the Makota, if they get on the charters and uh, hop out of uh, Timor, I think that'll be very bad because uh, it will really take away the, um, the screen of uh, international presence that has transformed the atmosphere in Timor. I mean, it's, it's been so different here with all these foreigners around. It really has provided uh, a measure of protection for the Timorese, as bad as things have been. And now if they all run away, um, uh, it's going to be very rough for the, for the Timorese. I also... Um, it really occurs to me that, you know, noting these four U.N. Timorese employees killed, six missing, imagine if those had been American uh, U.N. employees or Americans of any kind or British people. Uh, I think the international reaction would have been a lot different. Uh, I don't think, uh, as of this morning, uh, Clinton would have been able to still uh, pump, uh, you know, money 
and uh, military supplies into uh, the Jakarta regime. Um, but because they're just Timorese UN employees, uh, that support for Jakarta can continue, even though there's apparently no shortage of finger-wagging uh, and empty words coming out of Washington and the, uh, the Western powers. Uh, I mean, it's, it's outrageous. Uh, Clinton can stop this right now, uh, and he's not doing it. It's, it's on him. What do you make of Assistant Secretary of State Stanley Roth telling the Australian Broadcasting Corporation that Indonesia is capable of disbanding the militias and must face international intervention if it fails to do so? Uh, that's something uh, the U.S. ambassador, the British ambassador to the U.N., uh, when I spoke to them in the last few days, were not even willing to say that the Indonesian military is responsible for these militias. We're getting the sense that the militias are now out of everyone's control. Well, they're, they're not. I mean, the militias are tightly controlled uh, by the Indonesian Army Special Forces. It's actually been, if you look at it, a pretty finely calibrated uh, operation. Uh, as one Western military person put it to me here the other day, this is an, a, a brinksmanship operation. Uh, Waranto takes with the militias, takes things up to the brink, uh, sees how much they can get away with without paying a concrete price, and then they pull back a little. Uh, I don't think these militias are in any way out of control. I think they're very... Uh, they're on a very tight leash from Jakarta and uh, TNI uh, headquarters. It's definitely true that Jakarta can shut them down. To talk about international intervention, though, really confuses things. Uh, uh, intervention isn't uh, the right word when uh, the problem is that international powers are, are feeding the beast, are uh, feeding the, uh, the TNI, Aubrey, uh, the Indonesian army. Just stop feeding it to stop uh, backing it. They'll be terrified. That army uh, uh, is very dependent politically uh, uh, in many other ways on their international uh, sponsors. And as soon as they know the sponsors are seriously going to cut aid, they'll stop. Uh, but they will not stop until that moment. Uh, it doesn't require intervention, sending in uh, troops. Uh, it's not as if the U.S., and the other powers are third parties uh, looking on at atrocities committed by some perpetrator they have nothing to do with. They're the quartermaster for the perpetrator. They're the paymaster. They're uh, the people who make that uh, army killing machine uh, run. They've just got to stop supplying the fuel. That's the way to stop Alan Nairn speaking to us from Dili, East Timor. And joining us on the line now from Massachusetts is Professor Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky, who has written extensively about East Timor since the Indonesian military invaded in 1975. Since that time, in this last quarter of a century, uh, responsible for the deaths of a third of the Timorese population, 200,000 Timorese, and we see that that killing continues. Uh, Noam Chomsky has just written a piece for the Mother Jones uh, online uh, uh, East Timor section called Why Americans Should Care About East Timor. Welcome to Democracy Now! Noam. Well, you've just heard Alan uh, describing the situation in East Timor. Uh, does anything surprise you about what he has said? Uh, afraid not. You know, I think he's exactly accurate, as he's been for many years on this and other topics, that's exactly what's going on, and his crucial points, I think, are very well taken. Uh, the issue is not intervention. The issue is turning off the tap. Uh, the U.S. knows exactly how to do it. Uh, the U.S. supported the, uh, Indonesia 
passionately through the period of its worst atrocities internally, its invasion of East Timor, uh, uh, while Suharto is compiling an outrageous human rights record at home. Uh, when the U.S. got tired of him, he, he finally did some things that the U.S. didn't like, namely two things uh, in the fall of 1997. Uh, one, he made his first two mistakes. He, he lost control, and that's no good. No use having a, your favorite dictator if you can't control the population. And even worse, he was dragging his feet on uh, IMF proposals, which would have, in effect, destroyed the Indonesian economy, and he wasn't implementing them properly. Uh, those were the two errors. Uh, the IMF flew in and ordered him in a very dramatic moment uh, to uh, sign up. In fact, there was a picture circulated all over Indonesia with Suharto sitting at a desk uh, signing a statement while the uh, director, Michel Kamdesu, of the IMF was standing above him with his arms crossed and uh, what the press described as a typical colonial stance. Uh, and uh, shortly after, in, in May 1998, uh, Secretary of State Albright uh, informed Suharto that the time had come for him to resign and provide for what he called a democratic transition. A couple hours later, uh, that's exactly what he did. Uh, the U.S., it's not you know, just cause and effect, but the U.S. understands very well uh, how to terminate all of this. They don't need any instructions, uh, and they don't want to do it. Uh, as Alan, and that's what—that's uh, the most important point that Alan made. I mean, in much of this discussion about intervention and the last couple of months, there has been a really cowardly evasion, and we should avoid it. Uh, the evasion is to say, well, yeah, we're inconsistent. We have a double standard. Uh, sometimes we look the other way, but at least let's do the right thing. Sometimes that's not the point. Uh, the, the U.S. government is not looking away. The British government is not looking away neither in this case nor many other cases, uh, many of them uh, comparable or worse, Turkey, for example, right now, Colombia, uh, it doesn't look away. It participates, participates actively to escalate atrocities and violence. It's not looking away. Uh, in East Timor is a dramatic case because it's been going on for almost for 25 years now. Uh, it's the, what's looking away has been... Uh, the media and intellectual opinion, apart from a few people like you and Alan. Uh, but uh, uh, it's direct involvement. The U.S. has a overwhelming control. Uh, it's not necessary to bomb Jakarta. It's not even necessary to have sanctions. Uh, it is simply necessary to inform the Indonesian uh, military that this game is over, just the way they informed uh, Suharto in May 1998 uh, that... Uh, his game was over, and it was time for him to move into the background. Well, uh, Noam Chomsky, uh, this is uh, Juan Gonzalez here. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, uh, several years ago, I recall when, uh, uh, when uh, Amy and Alan returned from su surviving that massacre uh, in Dili, I uh, wrote a column for the Daily News about it, and the reaction of my editor at first was, East Timor, who ever heard of that? Why should we care about it? Uh, and uh, I proceeded to try to explain to him how amazed that a, a major editor at a Metropolitan Daily newspaper did not even know where East Timor was. Uh, what about this ability, uh, this continued ability of the uh, mass media in our country to totally ignore uh, major uh, human rights situations that are occurring around 
of the world uh, just because the U.S. government doesn't want to shed any attention on them, as you mentioned, what's going on in Turkey uh, or Colombia. Uh, and why should the American people care about these, uh, these situations? Well, the American people do care, uh, and that's why the media keep it quiet. Uh, they know perfectly well that if the population knows about it, they're not going to like it. Uh, the American population will not easily accept the fact that they are contributing through their taxes and their tacit support to huge massacres. Uh, for example, let's take, say, Turkey. If the U.S. population knew that within NATO itself, not outside its borders, uh, there were, was ethnic cleansing and atrocities and massacres going on on a scale way beyond what was attributed to Milosevic in Kosovo, and that they were paying for it, and that the arms were increasing thanks to Clinton as the atrocities were increasing, you would have seen a public reaction. Uh, and that's why there's no reporting. Uh, not that you don't know. I mean, you can easily find out, after all, uh, these atrocities are going on in an area where there are U.S. air bases all over the place, uh, including nuclear-armed planes. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it's just not... And, in fact, there are a few reporters reporting, like Jonathan Randall, who's a veteran uh, Middle East correspondent of the Washington Post. I think he resigned a couple of years ago. But he, he's been there for years and has just written an excellent book about it. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's not the story. The story that comes from Washington is concentrate on some particular enemy's crimes. And then you fly in and concentrate on their crimes and you uh, demonstrate, you know, you show great... Uh, concern for all the awful things they're doing and so on. Now, look, you saw this in Haiti. Uh, this, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the orders come from on top, and that's where you go. Now, there are exceptions, uh, the, uh, uh, but, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty standard. And the East Timor is a dramatic case because it's been going on for 25 years. In fact, the uh, coverage declined declined to actually zero in the national press uh, as the atrocities mounted. The 200,000 killed figure, which is now widely accepted, uh, that's a figure which was presented by very credible sources, church sources and others, back in uh, 1978, at the time when the Carter administration was rushing new arms to uh, uh, Indonesia, and the atrocities were peaking uh, with uh, massive assaults, uh, bombing, napalm, so on up in the mountains. Uh, the uh, but uh, it was not the right topic. We were supposed to worry about something else at that time, somebody else's crimes. Uh, the uh, current situation, as, as Alan pointed out quite rightly, I mean, it may look new to reporters, but uh, that's because they weren't there before. Uh, if uh, it's a continuation, uh, it's not anywhere near the peak of atrocities. Uh, a couple of months ago, it was worse than it is now. Uh, and, uh, Amy mentioned that the... Uh, Militia, meaning the Indonesian paramilitaries, uh, have taken over Liquisa. Well, you know, that was a town where just back in April, uh, people were fleeing from uh, the Indonesian-run paramilitaries. They fled into a church. Uh, about 60 were massacred in the church. Uh, most of the rest were taken out and turned into effectively slave labor up in the mountains. Uh, a lot of the town was burned down. This is going on in April. It was widely reported in the press, namely the Australian press. Uh, there was no reason not to report it here. 
Noam, we have to break for stations to identify themselves. We'd ask, like to ask if you could stay for just three more minutes after that break. We're speaking with Noam Chomsky, uh, who uh, has written a piece most recently for the Mojo Wire, which is at www.motherjones.com, which is reporting extensively on East Timor right now, called Why Americans Should Care About East Timor. And we've just been listening to a report from journalist Alan Nairn in Dili, East Timor. By the way, I should mention that Alan uh, is on the Army blacklist um, he uh, was able to secretly get into Indonesia four months ago. When I was deported last week, I saw his name uh, on that blacklist, uh, the Red Bound book that has more than a 1,000 names. Uh, Alan, who survived the massacre of 1991, where more than 250 Timorese were killed by the Indonesian military arm with U.S. weapons. In 94, we returned to cover Clinton going to uh, Jakarta. He met with Suharto, as well as his own campaign contributors. When we tried to get into East Timor then, we were arrested by the Indonesian military, though we eventually did get in. Alan went back last year, held a news conference in Jakarta, um, where he uh, revealed documents that showed, once again, the United States military training Kapasas troops, the crack Indonesian military troops in uh, uh, torture techniques and terrorism. And Alan was then deported from Indonesia and now has returned, has been there for about four months and got into Dili as well, despite that blacklist. You're listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! We'll be back with Noam Chomsky in a minute. There is no silence deep enough. There is no silence deep enough. No corruption thick enough. No politician painted to bury your story, to keep it from us. Love from a short distance. You are listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman here with Juan Gonzalez, our guest Noam Chomsky, professor at MIT, well-known critic of U.S. policy in many areas, the Middle East, uh, as well as uh, Indonesia, Turkey. Um, has written this piece called Why Americans Should Care About East Timor. It's interesting, Noam, to look at the coverage. Now, there is more coverage, although it almost never talks about the U.S. support for the Indonesian military and its occupation of East Timor. But we did see a change recently, Um, not so much in tone, because Seth Midens of the New York Times on Monday uh, had a piece where he talked about the Timorese playing victim. It was quite astounding um, how he put it, as he talked about after 24 years of war and propaganda, they know how to play the well-intentioned victim. And I could only think about right now how, well, the latest report from the Washington Post, about 100 people, including 25 journalists, being evacuated from Dili this morning, um, a British uh, broadcasting corporation reporter beaten and kicked. Um, uh, When the reporters get not even a tenth of the treatment that the Timorese get, they get out. Uh, that was an amazing comment. I saw that. 
but in fact, I think his general reporting is the tone of it is uh, pretty shocking. I mean, this morning, uh, you know, the pro-independence thugs and the uh, anti-independence ruffians, as if it's some kind, uh, as if uh, that's the conflict that's going on. Uh, the same is true in other newspapers. For example, this morning's Boston Globe, where I am, uh, the report, by not a bad reporter, talks about uh, how the problem has been that since the Indonesian invasion, there has been a civil war and starvation. There hasn't been any civil war since the Indonesian invasion. Uh, there was a civil war for a couple of weeks uh, before the Indonesian invasion. That was long over before Indonesia invaded. Uh, but that's uh, kind of a more um, uh, acceptable way to describe it. And uh, as you say, not, nothing or virtually nothing about the fact that it's been a decisive U.S. contribution all along. The standard line has been, well, you know, Washington Post, James Fallows, others. Uh, maybe we looked away too long and we should have become involved but we were busy with other things. Or, as the Wall Street Journal put it, we were uh, overwhelmed by the uh, tragedy of, uh, our tragedy, of course, in Vietnam, not the tragedy of millions of Vietnamese who were killed. Uh, so, but we didn't look away. You know, the, Maybe uh, the population didn't know, but the press knew, uh, the government knew, and directly involved themselves in escalating the massacre. And in fact, they were pretty frank about it. Uh, Daniel Moynihan, who was the uh, U.N. ambassador, uh, boasted in his memoirs 20 years ago that he had rendered the U.N. utterly ineffective in anything it might do uh, because the State Department wanted things to turn out as they did. You could hardly find a more straight comment from right on top. It made no ripples. But the change now in the New York Times, which is interesting, is uh, that uh, for years, uh, many people have been criticizing them for talking about when they rarely reported on Indonesia, on, on East Timor. The dateline is Dili, Indonesia, as opposed to Dili, East Timor, but now it's changed. Actually, the Boston Globe just changed it about three days ago. Up until then, it was Dili, Indonesia. But look, the, the, the Timorese are still called a separatist movement. I mean... What makes them a separatist movement? I mean, was, were the Kuwaitis a separatist movement after Iraq invaded? The, the framing of the, of the, of the issue and the, and the complete evasion of responsibility, direct, crucial responsibility, those are striking. Uh, and they have to be overcome if we want to do anything constructive about this. Uh, the, to get back to Alan's point, which I think ought to be stressed, uh, there is no need for punitive action against Jakarta. There is a need for the Clinton administration to tell them this game is over. What is your sense, though, if the Clinton administration does not do that, of what uh, what may develop in uh, uh, in East Timor over the next few weeks? Well, I think Alan's prognosis is very realistic. Uh, the kind of continuing terror of the Indonesian-run paramilitaries is very likely to drive out all the Westerners. Uh, the reporters will pull out, except for a courageous few. They'll be taken out. Uh, the Indonesians will keep others out. The UN mission, uh, not, I'm not even allowed to carry sidearms. Uh, they're going to go out because it's too dangerous for them. Uh, and you get back to a closed territory where, in, where the Indonesia and its paramilitary terrorists can do as they please. Uh, they've already said what they're going to do. I mean, maybe they won't, but they'll, they've said that they're uh, going to turn it into a uh, 
uh, well, you know, the commander of the military in Dili just a couple of weeks ago uh, told the Australian national television that, uh, quote him, I would like to convey the following. Uh, if the pro-independence do win, all will be destroyed, and East Timor won't be as we see it now. It will be worse than 23 years ago. Well, you know, we can disregard what the commander said a couple of weeks ago if we like. Uh, but it's uh, yeah, that could happen. And it's more likely to happen as attention shifts away. Uh, it's just the focus of attention that prevents it from happening. When the attention was withdrawn 20 years ago, that's exactly what happened uh, with, uh, with a huge slaughter uh, and uh, starvation you know, comparable or worse than Cambodia or Biafra. Uh, the, uh, uh, and it could happen again. Well, we want to thank you very much, Noam, for joining us today. Uh, and we want to let people know, uh, again, there are things as people could always do, and we've seen tremendous change actually happen around the issue of East Timor because of the activism in this country. Um, as Alan has always said, people do all they can in East Timor. It is really up to us. Uh, but just President Clinton making it very clear that the violence must stop would make that difference. And if people want to uh, call the president. Uh, remember his number. It is 202-456-1414. That is 202-456-1414. In addition to the Mother Jones website, www.motherjones.com, where you can get the latest on East Timor. You can always go to our website, www.pacifica.org. You can listen to the conversations we've been having with Alan Daly in Dili, East Timor. Um, and the ETAN website, East Timor Action Network, that lets you know about uh, the legislation that's up before Congress, like Bill 1063 in the House, that would cut off all loopholes to military training of Indonesian soldiers. Um, again, Noam Chomsky, thanks for being with us, speaking to us from Massachusetts. And you are listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! as uh, we move to our last segment, uh, which has to do with our continuing coverage of the Puerto Rican prisoners. Juan, uh, just two weeks ago, came back from Puerto Rico, uh, where two issues are dominating the news headlines and people's consciousness. One is the continued U.S. naval bombing of Yekes, the other, the prisoners that are being held in U.S. jails around the country. Well, it's not just Puerto Ricans on the island that care about this issue or are focusing on it. Um, congressional Republicans this week uh, are also looking into it and have stepped up pressure on the Clinton administration to withdraw the clemency offer it made last month to several Puerto Rican political prisoners and activists subpoenaing White House and Justice Department records and raising the likelihood of congressional hearings on the matter in the fall. Uh, Congress member Dan Burton, the Republican of Indiana, is spearheading the effort. He's the head of the House Government Reform and Oversight Committee. He's also the one who has subpoenaed uh, Attorney General Janet Reno and White House Counsel Cheryl Mills. Clinton has offered conditional clemency to some members of the Puerto Rican Independence Group, the Armed Forces of National Liberation, known as the FALN, if they agree to renounce violence, refrain from meeting with other independence leaders, and obey stringent guidelines barring them from using weapons. Under the proposal, 11 of the 16 prisoners would be eligible immediately for release. Two would have to serve more time before they're freed. Three, who've already been released from prison, would have fines against them reduced. The activists who were never 
never connected to an act of murder or violence and who have already served 14 to 19 years in prison are still reviewing the proposal. We're joined on the telephone now by Michael Deutsch, one of their attorneys, as uh, their other attorney, Jan Slussler, goes from prison to prison, speaking with the prisoners directly. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Michael. Thank you. Can you summarize for us these latest developments? It looks like when the uh, House comes back into session next week, this may be the issue that dominates uh, their first actions. Yeah, it looks uh, a very dangerous situation, and it's really essentially being fanned. These flames are being fanned by the FBI and other law enforcement working with these right-wing Republicans. What we have seen in the, since uh, President Clinton granted the clemency is really a disinformation campaign, kind of akin to COINTELPRO that the FBI began in 1960, directed against the prisoners, putting out that they're violent, that they're committed to continuing with violence, and trying to uh, undermine the exercise of the president's uh, prerogative, uh, presidential prerogative of clemency. And it's even got to the point where they're putting information that there are secret tapes that the Bureau of Prisons have where the prisoners are talking about resuming violence upon their release from prison, which has turned out to be totally false. The Bureau of Prisons says they know of no such tapes, no such tapes exist. The FBI has put out a press release which is unsigned and anonymous saying that the prisoners have no remorse and they'll continue with their violent ways. So we have a climate that is really uh, being created by law enforcement which is very dangerous, and it's kind of a two different worlds. In Puerto Rico, you have tens of thousands of people marching in the streets calling for unconditional release. You have the arch, uh, Catholic archbishop saying that uh, the teachings of Catholicism demand unconditional release for all the prisoners. You have all the political groups, religious groups, all supporting it. And in the U.S., you have this, you know, this right-wing surge uh, saying they should withdraw the clemency. So we are in a very difficult period and a very difficult situation, and it really underscores what our point has been. If our clients come out under this parole-type conditions, which is conditional release, given the climate of the law enforcement, particularly in Chicago and New York, it is they can be sent back to prison and lose their clemency and have to do the rest of their time on a violation without a trial, without a finding of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, without real due process. The FBI could easily set them up. They could put drugs in their house, their car. They could set them up with a gun. They could violate them for merely associating with other people who uh, have criminal records in the independence movement. And we know since the independence movement has been criminalized over the last three, four decades, there are many of the leaders, many of the activists, Lolita LeBron, Rafael Cancel Miranda, and others, who have criminal records. So if they met with them at a demonstration, they could be violated and sent back to prison and have to do the rest of their time. So it really underscores the problems with this conditional release and the limitations on their political freedom. Well, well, Michael, I'd like to ask you, in terms of setting the record straight on some of these this misinformation that has come out, uh, obviously one one that we, uh, we've heard a lot of in the last few days, and I have to say every time I turn on the TV, one of these talk shows, there's, there's a, a, a debate or a battle going on over this issue. You had Dick Morris uh, in the New York Post who has no credibility but manages to still write a column uh, talking about how uh, this, uh, this clemency of President Clinton will become the Willie Horton case uh, for Hillary Clinton in her Senate run. 
the uh, the facts on this issue of renouncing violence. Now, uh, I know because I had gotten the information from Jan Sussler uh, months ago that the uh, b- back two and a half years ago, the prisoners sent out a uh, a collective message indicating that they were perfectly willing, uh, if the United States began this decolonization process of Puerto Rico, to uh, to join a democratic process, and were actually somewhat self-critical of what had happened in the past and. Uh, and then recently they issued an even more clear declaration that they have no intention of getting involved in uh, in violent activities in the fight for Puerto Rican independence. Yet this the whole issue of uh, they haven't renounced violence continues to be uh, continues to be raised. Yeah, I mean they they've each individually have unequivocally said they're committed to nonviolence upon their release. They said it two years ago. It was in a in a more of a context. But now each one of them has said that they're committed to nonviolence and they are not going to be involved in any acts of violence upon their release. The problem is is that not many people want to hear that who are opposed to their release. In addition, uh, because there are other conditions in this clemency, the, the conditions of release, and also that doesn't cover all the, the other prisoners, that we haven't really accepted it. And therefore, people are saying, well, the fact that it hasn't been accepted means that they're still committed to violence. And that's really a distortion of the reality. The reality is, is that each one of them believes that for themselves, at this juncture, violence is not an option and is not appropriate. Michael Deutsch, what about the Newsweek report saying they have one of them on tape uh, saying that they will resume violence when they get out. Well, the, that Newsweek report, and I've been in, in, con, in contact with the general counsel of Newsweek, first of all, that's an anonymous report that says secret tapes, Bureau of Prison secret tapes exist that have not been released yet. doesn't say when the tapes were made or what exactly the tapes say. The White House itself called the acting director of the Bureau of Prisons, and he told them we have no such tapes and know of no such tapes. So again, it's COINTELPRO, again, putting out false information to discredit people who are active in the independence movement. And uh, as far as we know, it would be absurd to, to, to think that they would be talking on the telephone, which they know is monitored, about intentions to go out and commit acts of violence, which they have unequivocally said they even, don't even think politically for themselves it makes sense to do. Well, and, and clearly the, the, the bigger issue is that uh, most Americans don't want to deal with the fact that Puerto Rico remains the Irish question of, of American history. Uh, the FALN and the Macheteros were only the last of a long string of groups uh, that have had to resort to violence to continue to raise the continuing colonial situation until that's dealt with. Uh, there will be new generations of this kind of activity in the future. Well, I want to thank you very much, Michael Deutsch, for joining us, attorney uh, for the Puerto Rican prisoners uh, that remain in jail. And Juan, uh, thanks for your continued reporting on this issue. That does it for today's program, Democracy Now!, produced by Maria Carrion and David Love. Matthew Finch, our engineer today. Our email address, democracy at pacifica.org. If you'd like to order a cassette copy of the show, 1-800-735-0230. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez for another edition of Pacifica Radio's Democracy now.
unequivocally said they're not even don't even think politically for themselves it makes sense to do. Well, and, and clearly the, the, the bigger issue is that uh, most Americans don't want to deal with the fact that Puerto Rico remains the Irish question of, of American history. Uh, the FALN and the Macheteros were only the last of a long string of groups uh, that have had to resort to violence to continue to raise the continuing colonial situation until that's dealt with. Uh, there will be new generations of this kind of activity in the future. Well, I want to thank you very much, Michael Deutsch, for joining us, attorney uh, for the Puerto Rican prisoners uh, that remain in jail. And Juan, uh, thanks for your continued reporting on this issue. That does it for today's program, Democracy Now!, produced by Maria Carrion and David Love. Matthew Finch, our engineer today. Our email address, democracy at pacifica.org. If you'd like to order a cassette copy of the show, 1-800-735-0230. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez for another edition of Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now!, Thank you.